You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 11, Episode 13, College of the Pacific Letter, November 13th, 1974. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans, all of you Star Trek, hey, all you historians. And you know what? This week, even all you tech heads, and I, I think even I think even you Canonistas are going to enjoy this one. No, we're going to dive, well, a little bit different slice of the Trek files, but still very much key to everything we can find out about Gene and the people in his orbit, uh, the people who wanted to be in his orbit at all eras of Star Trek and of Gene's career. Look, <laughs> if, if I'm if I'm vague explaining here, you know what to do. Just go to our site at Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek files. There's our documents of the week. I'm going to jump in here in just a second with a special guest, someone new to the show this week. Um, and a little bit different slice of, well, the fan mail that we, we sometimes we get out of the fan, the, the archives and talk about, but this one very specific and we have a very specific guest to, uh, to reflect on it. So go to Facebook, look at the document. Meantime, here is our audio sample, but hang on. I'll be right back with this week's guest. term in January 1975, I've been granted permission to design hypothetical organ systems for extraterrestrial life forms as independent research. The work will take into account what types of functional organ systems would tend to evolve on planets other than Earth where conditions would vary. Therefore, I would like to request any still photos that I might be able to get from you of Klingons, Romulans, Tholians, the Megatu, the Horda, Tribbles, etc., along with any pertinent written data regarding these organisms, the purpose of this being that I wish to maintain continuity with the Star Trek theme. All right, Trekanistas, Trekphilians, Trekophiles, spelled with an F. Uh, we're going to dive into the science world of Star Trek this week. And not just the science world, but the what-if world of Star Trek, a little world that I know a little bit about. But I, I found this letter in the mailbag as we were looking at fan mail recently, and I thought, you know what? This deserves, this deserves more than a cursory look, because it just brought up all kinds of things for me. And I thought, these days, who better... Who better to bounce off this particular piece of Trek Filiana than our good friend, Dr. Mom and Noor. Now, you guys know you hear him online all the time, but you did you know he's actually the professor of biology and vice provost for academic affairs at Duke University? And that gives him the authority, Captain. No. And he also serves as a science consultant, along with our great Dr. Aaron Mack. He is a science consultant, too, especially on the bio side of things for various current Star Trek series. Um, Dr. Noor, okay, mom, I'm, that's silly. We've known each other for a while. Oh, he's also the author of a book about this very subject. So, hey, welcome to the show. And what did you think when you, um, when I sh shared this little letter with you? Well, thank you very much. I love being on the Trek Follow. Thanks for having me. And always great to see you, my friend, Larry. <laughs> yes, you too, sir. Um, it was interesting. I could, uh, um, well, I mean, there was a little comment, which I think didn't get read at the very beginning where, uh, the, uh, the student said, I'm from Stockton, had parentheses, 
it's okay. Nobody knows where that is either. I was like, I know where Stockton is. I'm not <laughs> from California. <laughs> well, you know, part of, part of the whole thing of this letter is we are looking at 1974. So everything, there's like so many things that are period. And, it, and of course, I always say one thing about the Trek files or anything in history is it's interesting to see how much things have changed, but also exactly what is exactly the same, right? In all the ways. And so much of this letter reeks of 1974. But the basic sure. core thing of him looking out for the... So, I mean, yeah, that's one thing. Like, we all know Stockton because we all live in a more global world uh, than no, you point, point. So yeah. there, were, there were two things that struck me from the letter. Yeah. Uh, one of them was the organ system part. And I want to come back to that because it's interesting to just even think, would they even have organ systems? I mean, if you're trying to think of like life on some, uh, in some other world that's completely independent of ours, wouldn't necessarily... I want to come back to that. But let me hit another sort of subtle point okay. and said, in very different environments from ours. There was an assumption there that it, by virtue of being in a different environment, you would look very different. That, that's, that's interesting because that's kind of half true. It is true that if you look at organisms on Earth, so we're talking about animals, plants, you know, if you look at ones from a desert biome versus, you know, an ocean biome mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. they all obviously look very different. But you don't necessarily, if you have things which are truly independent, if they were in the same biome, you wouldn't necessarily look, expect them to look the same. So imagine, for example, an ocean on Earth versus an ocean on some other planet, and life was completely unrelated, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see things that looked at all awesome. I mean, you, you might expect some general functional similarities, but that's a little bit of a leap. Um, oh. Yeah, it's interesting because people mm -hmm. assume that, and that people often when they ask me questions about like why there's so many humanoids in Star Trek, they say, well, you know, it's, it's probably because, oh, there's a planet had an oxygen nitrogen environment, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily lead to humans or humanoids. Right, right. <laughs> right. The structure it takes, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, or you could just say, I'm sorry, didn't you see the chase on TNT? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a whole talk about that, which we'll save for some other time. <laughs> no, totally. But the organ system thing is interesting, because if you think about uh, the first couple of billion years of life here on Earth, everything was one-celled, <laughs> right? Right. So, I mean, that's a long time. And, and what, one of the things that allowed for multicellularity was the fact that we had this one, one cell organism kind of swallowed another one and was able to get energy out of it. Over a long period of time, that second one, the one that was swallowed, is what we now call the mitochondrion. <laughs> this, uh -huh. Descended from it. So, you probably heard of the mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. But it's something that allowed for the sort of multicellularity. You're, not, you're never going to have organs unless you're multicellular, right? <laughs> so. That's it. Oh wait, the mitochondrion. I was thinking yeah. the okay. I was thinking of a series on Disney Plus. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. Boo, boo. Okay. okay. No, no, but but yes, but proceed, Professor. Yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> so I mean, the question uh, then would be, you know, a first would would they look at all similar to us? Would they even be carbon based and water mm -hmm. solvent and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff? And then the mm -hmm. second part, would it even be multicellular such that you would have something that you would even call? Oregon systems in that sense. Um, now, beyond that, the, the examples that they chose. Because we've seen, we've seen in whatever form of the visual effects could take in the 60s or the 20s, we've seen, you know, the, the giant one amoeba, you know, like one-celled yeah. amoeba even. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah Much it's less the, the Horta silicon and all that. So all the variety yeah. that could be out there, we've struggled to depict that technically. But yeah. they've at least tried to imagine all that variety. But you're exactly. saying exactly. It, may, it might not necessarily be that diverse. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that we it, it's very, very hard to predict. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I mean, essentially, the, the sky is the limit. So, it's it's possible, first of all, that things would just be, like, if you were to go to, for example, Enceladus, you know, one of the moons of Saturn, 
it's possible that there is life there, but maybe it's all single cell. I mean, there's nothing is actually adapted into what we would call having organ systems. It's also possible that it has. I mean, it's, it's very, very hard to predict. Um, but again, like I said, the first several billion years of life on Earth, everything was single-celled. So it seems like that's the simpler approach, you know, not, not too yeah. surprisingly. Now, in terms of the, the specifics that were listed there, you mentioned the Mugato, the, the Horda. I mean, those are radically different examples. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I just said Horda is silicon-based, which is... It was always interesting that they were on the Class M Janus 6 planet digging mining tunnels, but that's where the order arose. We never got to see the surface of the world, like what kind of vegetation might even be our other yeah. plant, you know, other land, you know, what other kind of life forms might be on the same planet. But anyway. Yeah. Actually, there was a specific- I digress. There was a specific comment in terms of the Horda too in that episode where the, um, uh, McCoy said, silicon-based life is physiologically impossible, especially in an oxygen atmosphere. And then Spock speculated, well, maybe with brief periods it could survive in that. So it's interesting to assume in terms of that planet, it probably mm -hmm. doesn't have a very mm -hmm. large oxygen-based atmosphere, or the world just lives underground all the time. <laughs> well, and and use that's a good lot. That's a good point. I'd forgotten that line, but it also points out to how even in the '60s they were trying to insert a little bit of you know caveat, not just have it be totally blue sky. Oh, look what's on this planet we found this week, and have them have a little bit of discussion. Anyway, yeah, and actually the discussion was spot on because I mean that is mm -hmm. one of the issues. I mean, one of the nice things that we're carbon-based, of course. One of the nice things about carbon is you can make these sort of long chains and branch chains of carbon, 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 carbon. Silicon doesn't do that as well. It would prefer to bind to things like oxygen or hydrogen. So if you're in a heavily oxygen or hydrogen-based environment, you know, it's, it's more likely to break off. Mm. That. Remember what silicon dioxide is, is that's basically sand. So it can break down into sand. Yeah. That wouldn't be very fun. <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't, by that time, they didn't have a science consultant per se, but they had Callum DeForest Research who, would, who was, you know, doing it so good. As a, as a science consultant, I know you appreciate that. But I mean, oh yeah, definitely. That era did manage to give us, I feels like half of NASA. Yeah, <laughs> and totally. many you know people across many science and other fields. Um, but Jay, so you were talking about this diversity here. That, yeah, that he was listening. We have there is interesting. He was asking for photographs, but I was thinking like with the photographs, you wouldn't really get a sense of much of this of the mm -hmm. organs. You're seeing close. I mean, it's not like it's not like they're X-rays, right? <laughs> you there's a the Mugato, and there's the Mugato up close. I mean, are, how much of the organs are you seeing? You see this funny orange thing? <laughs> well, you know, it's like pancreas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because now here I go back to 1974, and he, you know, he's up here isolated in Stockton. Yeah. And and to our to our sensibility today, he's number one. So this is this tells me a lot of things already. It's 74, which in Star Trek terms is very early. Now the yeah. the animated series has just done, is about to do its six little episodes, second season, and that's it. But anyway, the animated series is a thing, so Star Trek is well enough known, and it was all over the, you know, the Trekkie kids got a comeback of sorts, but it's still a thing. We're three years away from Star Wars being, you know, blown under our consciousness. So it's interesting to me that he's a student. Yeah. This is like a Jan the winter term. It's like the intercession class here, it looks like. And it, they're, so he's got faculty. He didn't mention Star Trek because I'm doing detective yeah. work here. He didn't mention Star Trek, but he, they're letting him do a speculative, you know, topic, which is cool, which is 70s. I, I mean, it's, which is cool for the 70s, even though he didn't mention Star Trek. Um, and so that's an interesting. So there's a there's a thing about where science fiction was in the zeitgeist even then that he had s legit science people who weren't too snooty to let him do this for a project. This is what I wanted to add. Because you're not yeah. just a scientist, Dr. Noor, you're an educator. And yes. this is one of the things I wanted to get to, too, was um, 
people that this is from the student side. Yeah. I've known many educators, many professors, many high school, middle school teachers. We've had letters here, but I know we know some in fandom. I'm talking to one right now that use Star Trek in the classroom. Absolutely. And actually, I should clarify in the beginning, I was seeing things I was a little surprised or things that struck me. I'm sorry, I totally should have started with this. That the whole letter is so cool. I mean, I, I apologize for nitpicking some of the specific aspects of it, but the whole letter is so cool. And the concept that the student was allowed to do this to explore science using science fiction is really cool. And the timing of your query for this, basically for this podcast discussion, is amazing because literally this week in my class, so I teach a class right now at Duke University called Genetics Evolution Star Trek. It's literally the name of the class. It's okay. going to be on the transcripts. Uh, the assignment. For Friday, which was already written in like long before I heard from you, the assignment for Friday, which I was just grading this morning before I hopped on this podcast, was pick, basically a, pick a planet that's not Earth or a moon that's not our moon or something like that and speculate on what life like what life would be like on there. So describe what the solvent for life would be, because it's not water-based. Describe what it would be carbon-based or have some other base product. How would it acquire energy? How would it resist radiation? Things like that. So it's actually quite similar in a sense. But of course, they're way ahead of me. This is somebody who was doing it more than 50 years ago. So, yeah, no, I mean, people who were really thoughtful with their sci fi were speculating, you know, and I'm sure by then the nascent uh, NASA program they were trying to, you know, we didn't have a lot of the planetary, obviously, we didn't have the planetary probes and, and telescopes that we do now, but there was the beginnings of, of legit exobiology. Well, they had the term exobiology by then, they used it on Star Trek. So, but the, the other half of this letter, and, and you're, I'm laughing, it's okay that you dived into the hard science first before that, but the overlap here with, with uh, Star Trek in education is something that's, like I said, I've, I've known teachers and professors who have used it, and you have for yep. ages. I mean, is there, a, I, this is the thing, I, sometimes I want to get in touch with them, and I'm like, there should be like a National Association of <laughs> Star Trek Educators or something. They should all have a, like a group. That would be amazing. Get it started. Put that on your list. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've seen panels like that with a bunch of educators. Sure, this sure. At like conventions, I've seen that happen several times too. So yeah, it would be a really cool group. <laughs> and I mean, all levels. It was I've, when we had. I just remember in the '90s, I think, when I was editing Communicator magazine, I knew there was a big national story about a law school that was teaching Federation, you know, Star Trek law, or looking at the law of the Federation. Even so, all fields, all you know, sociology, psychology, science. Yeah. We Economics, think of science, especially, brain, yeah. yeah. But the other thing that gets me about this letter, because we've got a reply, not from Gene, but we've got the reply from Susan here. And part of this is it is still 1974, and you were laughing about the or, or looking at he was asking for photos, but that's about all he could do if he was asking for help. Yeah, you know. And she's saying, well, it's like what stills do we have, you know, printed up, and we'll look yeah. and see what we. You know, today we just go, I'll just go frame grab some things. Totally. You know, <laughs> I mean, with that whole, you know, just the logistics of uh, that. But the fact that it got a got an answer back and she's yeah. giving him, you know, references and, and we're in the well committee era here where, yeah. you know, this what I call the paper and stamp era, yeah. where you don't just go Google it. You have to write somebody and yeah. get some leads and then go write them. And yeah. anyway, I just, I just think it was, and, and it's really cool that he actually got. I mean, I, I was crediting the student at the studio, mm -hmm. but I mean, we should credit the fact that he got a reply from somebody who presumably gets a ton of fan mail and queries, mm -hmm. and things like that. So, I mean, that's a big deal. I really oh yes, oh yes, and we share a lot of it. Well, Susan did a book about letters to Star Trek, but obviously, we've you know Star Trek and its fan mail and its fans. 
Yeah. I don't know. Do you, what do you, what do you think? And, and we should, you know, I probably wrap up one of our little things here, but just this, just the look of uh, Star Trek used by teachers and educators. Is it like a great untapped kind of secret underground uh, thing? Or, you know, like, uh, like I said, there's not an organized, yeah. you know, network apparently, but what, what's your take on that? I mean, it, it seems very worthwhile to me because it's been going on since it's a, this is student originated, but I know at the same time, I've seen stories from the seventies early on. It's, Teachers and professors were using Star Trek in the class. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's been happening a lot. I think, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an untapped resource. I think it's just an under-recognized resource. Because I, I remember even when I was in college, I remember people making references to things from Star Trek. Maybe not having an entire class based on it. But that wasn't true in the case of the letter that, that, that we were just discussing mm -hmm. either. But I think in general, people like having a narrative to explain a concept. Whether the concept is in theology or economics or biology or chemistry or whatever. They like having a narrative. Star Trek has amazing narratives, and it tends to try to do things right. And there's a difference, of course, between sci-fi and fantasy. I mean, if you try to do, you know, inheritance using, you know, something that involves magic, it's a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's nothing like, you know, getting a teacher's finding ways to, not to entertain their kids, you know, yeah. but, but to find yeah, a sure. different way to grab, yeah, to grab their attention and open it up and get it out of out of the book or off yeah. the written word in a whole new way to, to make it a new filter to yeah, put it through. And I think there's a myth that people need to be a, a already interested in that particular topic. I think people are just interested mm -hmm. in having a narrative. So in my Jinx Evolution Star Trek class, most of the students have never watched any Star Trek on TV, but they just signed up because they just wanted to have an interesting narrative. It wasn't so much that like they already loved Star Trek per se, but they liked the idea of a cool narrative with it. Now, obviously, if you do love Star Trek, then it makes even more sense. <laughs> right, right, right. These are smart. <laughs> and if it's and if it's in the advertised title of the class versus something that's just come up and used occasionally, exactly. that's that's a difference that's going to attract. Exactly. Well, but I also say, and somebody would say, and I, we should probably close on this, but that a lot of people would say, well, you know, Star Trek was in the seventies; it was a new, hot, new thing, and in the seventies yeah. and eighties. But today, there's all the other franchises out there, and that's cool. And whatever, to me, whatever a teacher can use to engage students and get them to look at something through a new lens is wonderful. Totally. Totally. But since Star Trek has always been rationally based <laughs> and everything from, from the sciences to the soft sciences, right? Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's very cool when it's, if, if it's not ballyhooed in the title, people come in and they're engaged, even if they're not fans, because it still shows to me, the long, the long-term attraction of Star Trek, even when yeah. people aren't expecting it, you know. Yeah, and it lives on. I mean, the the episode I showed this week in class was the Horde episode, Devil in the Dark, mm -hmm. and they were all in. In fact, in fact, we didn't quite get to the last few minutes of it, so I just I, I set it aside. But then I said, well, look, you want me to play it the next time in class? M multiple people had already looked it up. <laughs> 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 it is 2023 or 2024, you know. Yeah. Anyway, listen, Mama, this has been so much fun to have you yeah. on. How, how have I waited this long to do this? We'll, we'll have you back sometimes because this intersection between not just science and Star Trek, obviously, and that's your job on several fronts, but also this intersection of education and Star Trek, too. I, I really, I think that's an under we, if nothing else, we'll have a little a subtextual goal here. We'll get that National Association of Star Trek Educators yes. up and going. We'll start the yeah. campaign here. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. And, and again, we will have you back sometime soon. Pleasure. For, thanks for having me. Oh, sure. Hey, everyone. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your choice to comment, and please do, are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. 
Uh, yeah, that's me at LarryNemechek.com. And that's where you can also link in for all the new Trek File swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.